The book of Ecclesiastes is written by a fellow by the name of Solomon who kind of was putting on his best face in public. I mean, all this gold and all this wealth and all these servants, all this stuff. But inside, he was dying a thousand deaths. He wasn't as he appeared on the outside. There was a a veneer there. And finally, as we get through the book of Ecclesiastes and we get to chapter 6, he kind of drops the veneer and, and kind of opens his heart And he kind of levels with us what he's really feeling inside. He's talking about living a life that's a dead end. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about. Life in a cul-de-sac. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, at this time, and turn back to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes and the sixth chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We have a missionary sent from our church over in Russia. His name is Nikolai. My wife and I, in time, want to be able to go over and visit him and and Jamie and the kids. And I've never been to Russia, been to Europe, but uh, always wanted to go to Russia. And I want to go to Red Square, and I want to go to Lenin's tomb. Lenin died in, in 1926, and they embalmed the body in a special way and periodically do maintenance on it so that you can still, through a a glass coffin, observe it to this day. But it's my understanding that after all these decades, it's quite a bit of wax and quite a bit of uh, paste and quite a bit of paint to kind of keep it looking good, if you know what I mean. You know, as I thought of that, I thought about a lot of people in this world today. as, As they live, they put on a veneer. You know what I mean by that? And on the outside, things look good, but inside, it's not going so well. And the book of Ecclesiastes is written by a fellow by the name of Solomon who kind of was putting on his best face in public. I mean, all this gold and all this wealth and all these servants, all this stuff. But inside, he was dying a thousand deaths. He wasn't as he appeared on the outside, much like Lenin. There was a a veneer there. And and finally, as we get through the book of Ecclesiastes and we get to chapter 6, he kind of drops the the veneer and and kind of opens his heart, and he kind of levels with us what he's really feeling inside. And what he's feeling inside is that it's all a dead end. And the life he had tried is a dead end. And the life people are living today is a dead end. So many people. We're going to read the whole chapter here, Ecclesiastes 6. There's only 12 verses, beginning in verse 1. Solomon says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor. Remember those three. So that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease. If a man beget an hundred children and live many years, so that the days of his life be many, and his soul be not filled with good, And also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh in with vanity and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place? 
All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. That which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for man in his life all the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow? For who can tell a man which shall be after him under the sun? Now, if I just lost you reading those 12 verses, I wouldn't be surprised. And if, if, if at this moment there's question marks just pouring out of your heart and mind, don't worry. You'll understand what he's talking about. He's, under, he's talking about living a, a life that's a dead end. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about. Life in a cul-de-sac. I've entitled a message, Life in a Cul-de-sac. Let's pray before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you, dear Lord, to bless this time in your word. Help us to get this truth down. May it change the way we look at life. May it change the way we live our lives. Father, I just pray now for your will to be done at this hour. And I ask it all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Life in a cul-de-sac. What's a cul-de-sac? Some of you live in them, so you know what they are. Maybe if you don't, or maybe you've heard the expression, you're not sure what it is. It's kind of a, a road that runs into an area of houses and has a little turnaround in it, but it's, it's really a dead end. There's no outlet. There's no through road through it. And some people are living that kind of a life. Really, it's a dead end. Solomon talks about it through the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and he talks about life under the sun, meaning this side of God. That expression, under the sun, is found in the book of Ecclesiastes 30 times. He makes reference to the fact that all is vanity. The life lived aside from God is vanity, which means it's empty, it's fruitless, it's worthless. It's vanity. You find that expression 37 times. And then he says it's vexation of spirit 10 times. The word vexation, I think, is only found in the Bible 13 times, and 10 of them are in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, it vexes my soul. And there are people yet today that are pursuing all the stuff that Solomon pursued and finding that it's vexation of spirit. They're they're trying sex. They're trying vices. They're trying drugs. They're trying alcohol. They're trying pornography. They're trying sodomy. They're trying money. They're trying it all, and it's leaving them empty. And they could have just read the book of Ecclesiastes. It would have really saved them a lot of trouble. You see, this is Solomon's diary. This is his journal. He's laying open his heart for us. In fact, in a, in a journal, there's normally no fluff. If you keep one, you know it's pretty much straight talk. And we're getting some straight talk from Solomon here. Solomon was conducting an experiment as an incredibly wealthy man, an incredibly wise man, a man wielding power and a, and a scepter, and, and he had everything going for him, so he thought, I'm going to figure out the purpose of life. I mean, I'm going to go fishing for some answers here. And what he finds is surprising it is revealing, it is realistic. We've been looking over his shoulder here, reading his journal, and, and we've seen little snapshots of certain things he was trying and finding out, well, it's a dead end. He said the, the life, the joker life, the clown life, the, the be merry life, that's a dead end. In Ecclesiastes 2.1, he said, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. I said, of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? And so he tried that route. 
the clown, the joker, the, the goof-around kind of guy. He said that didn't scratch the itch. Then he tried the workaholic route. In chapter 2 and verse 4, he said, I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards and planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits, I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees, and on and on and on and on and on he goes. I'm sure working 24-7 and, and just around the clock as a workaholic, and he said that didn't scratch the itch. Then he tried the collector route or the hoarder route. In chapter 2 and verse 7 he said, I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and on and on and on and on it goes. He tried all this collector stuff and that didn't scratch that itch. And then he fourthly spoke of materialism. And he said, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. And we saw that last time in chapter 10 and verse number, or 5 and verse 10. And so we see these snapshots of all the stuff that he's trying, but here in chapter 6 we find a, a, a snapshot of Solomon himself. He's tried it all, and he's telling us it's not fulfilling. In fact, by this point, it's kind of like are we having fun yet, you know? And he's not having any fun. Now, in the first three verses of chapter 6, we see what I call, first of all, the soul's frustration. The soul's frustration. Verse 1, he says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men, a man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. In other words, he has it all, but his soul isn't satisfied. His soul is empty. His soul is frustrated. You have a soul. We all have a soul. Many years ago, there was a Roman emperor by the name of Hadrian. Hadrian built a lot of stuff over in Europe. I've seen Hadrian's wall even in, in England. He was working in Tivoli, I think, toward the end of his life, building about a 750-acre tract of land, developing it, when all of a sudden he realized he was dying. His physician told him, you don't have long for this world. And he just kind of looked out blankly into space, and he said, oh, fleeing little soul, where wilt thou go now? Where wilt thou go now? Here was this busy, busy, busy soul. And he realized when his heart stopped and he took his last breath, that soul was going to be out in eternity. And he said, whither wilt thou go now? We all have a soul. We all have that in common. Solomon says in verse 1, though, there's an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it's common among men. It's common. What is it? Well, he goes in verse 2, he, he says, a man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth or lacketh, lacketh nothing for his soul of all that he desireth, Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is a vanity, and it is an evil disease. Now, first of all, in verse 2, I pointed out earlier three words. I want you to note them. These three words at the beginning are riches, wealth, and honor. Riches, wealth, and honor. Now, where have we heard those three words before? Well, there was a time when David, his father, Solomon's father, died, and Solomon ascended to the throne, and he felt so underqualified. Uh, he, he felt like such a rookie. And he said, I can't do this. I, I need help. 
God appeared to him and he said, well, you ask whatever it is you want. Now, what would you say? Kind of like the genie, you know, the, the rub the lamp thing. Whatever you want, poof, you've got it. Well, we'd probably say, I, I want a, a billion dollars um, to give to missions. <laughs> we always spiritualize it somehow, don't we? Yeah, right. Well, Solomon could have asked for anything. What did he ask for? We read over in Second Chronicles 1.11, God said to Solomon, because this was in thine heart. What was in his heart? What he asked for? Wisdom. He asked for wisdom. And God said to Solomon, because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet hast thou asked long life, but has asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself. He said, wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee. And I will give thee, notice those three again, riches and wealth and honor. Solomon here in the book of Ecclesiastes, I think, is talking about himself. Notice again, he said in verse 2, a man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor. He must be talking about himself and finding it that it does not satisfy. You ever done that? You ever asked somebody a question? And you've said, uh, I have a friend that has this problem, and it's really you. <laughs> and, oh, a friend, okay. That's kind of what Solomon's doing here. I'm thinking of a man that asked for riches and wealth and honor, and it's himself. And he's remembering that time in his life decades earlier when, when God gave him that. Notice in verse 2 again, though, at the end of the verse it says, Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is a vanity, and it is a, an evil disease. Now notice it says, Yet God giveth him not the strength or power to eat thereof. To eat thereof. The word eat there means to enjoy. It's, it's the Hebrew word akal. It means to kind of bask in. And so there are all kinds of things God gives us to enjoy. By the way, God gives you taste buds. I was talking to somebody recently, an elderly person, and I, we were at a restaurant. I said, well, how do you like the cell bar? They said, well, I, I can't really taste it much. And I knew what she meant. She, she just didn't have that ability much anymore. But God gives us taste buds. What a gift that is. And, and we are to enjoy food. And yet, you can have the best taste buds in the world, but if you're eating all stressed out, you don't enjoy that meal, do you? You ever had a meal like that? I mean, there's something heavy on your heart. You might be even hungry, but, but you can't enjoy it. You know, I think of, of uh, Rockefeller. J.D. Rockefeller, who lived back in the 1800s, became the world's first billionaire as he lived into the 1900s by, I think it was 1916, just before World War I. He became a billionaire. Nobody had ever done that before. And, and, and a billionaire today, it's, it's not as uncommon. Back then, though, it would have been like being uh, $200 billion today. So if you can imagine how fabulously rich he was. And yet he was so stressed out that by the time he was in his, I think, latter 40s, he couldn't eat anything and keep it down except soda crackers and milk. That was his diet. And I think of him as, as Solomon mentions, this guy who has riches and, and wealth and honor, and yet he can't eat thereof. He can't enjoy it. They say the same of Howard Hughes toward the end of his life. Had all this money, but he couldn't enjoy it. And in verse 2 at the end of the verse... It says, but a stranger eateth it. That word stranger in the Hebrew means an outsider, an alien, a, a foreigner eats it. Somebody comes out of the blue and, and gets it. You know, I'm thinking of somebody that I know 
who had uh, worked all his life very hard as a farmer and, and amassed a lot of money and never married and really has nobody to, to, to pass it on to. And a relative came out of the blue, out of the woodwork, and, and has been hanging around now, that, that individual who's, who's not long for this world, and now her kids will get it and her kids. And, and sometimes it works that way. A stranger eateth thereof. Sometimes that stranger, however, is figurative. It's an outside force. It's, it's unexpectedly. I think of how many people lost their homes up in Grand Forks back in 1997 in the flood. Some of my relatives did. And it just came out of nowhere, and, and the stranger developed or, 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 or ate up the wealth. I, I think of my little hometown of Mentor and a tornado that went through there here a few uh, years ago and, uh, and just leveled the convenience store there. And, and a fellow I know, Wes, was killed in that, that tornado. And, and a stranger just kind of ate it up. I think of uh, somebody who might have lost their, their health. I was talking with somebody recently and, and was going great through life and all of a sudden this health issue came. Maybe it's a financial reversal. Maybe it's, it's strife in the home that has, has just eaten up your joy. I, I received an email this past week from, from somebody that uh, it's hard to go on for them and, and you just stand back and, and it causes us to evaluate. Life's not fair, is it? And that's what Solomon's talking about here, this injustice. He said it's not right. Have you ever wondered why some people get sick? And you've wondered why the wrong people get sick? You ever known anyone that you might like to get sick? <laughs> but somebody, somebody sweet and wonderful gets sick and, and it causes you to stand back and say, the wrong people get robbed and the wrong people have car accidents and the wrong people are, are, are killed. A stranger eateth it up. The last part of verse 2 says, this is a vanity, and this is an evil disease. This isn't right. This is an injustice. It's enough to make you look back to heaven and, and say, this isn't right. My, my hopes were, were smashed. My dreams were smeared. And, and, and this, this stranger came out of nowhere and just upset the apple cart. It's, it's like an evil disease. Here's Solomon, and he's writing honestly. He's frank enough to, to not pull any punches. He's looking at life kind of with a cynical eye even. Now he goes on in verse 3. He says, if a man beget an hundred children and, leave, and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. A stillborn. A stillborn. Now, he mentions here, if this guy lives and begets all these children, lives a hundred years and begets a hundred children, he'll be happy? No. And those of you, you've had children, you know that children don't make life free of, of uh, meaninglessness and they don't make life free of depression and trouble and sometimes just the contrary, don't they? They can add that added dimension of strife to your life. Though they can be the greatest joy, Solomon says you can have a bunch of them and that's still not going to scratch that itch. He says in verse number 3, so that the soul be not filled with good. Now, a house can be filled with good. A garage can be filled with good stuff. The attic can have a lot of good stuff stored up there. The outbuildings can have a lot of stuff. The closets can have a lot of good. The refrigerator can have a lot of good. Uh, the li liquor cabinet of many homes can have a lot of stuff in it. And the bank account can have a lot of good. But he says that the soul be not filled with good. And friend, that's what really matters. That's why the soul can get so frustrated. You can have all this other stuff, but the soul is not filled with good. Notice the last part of verse number 3. I say that an untimely birth 
is better than he. Solomon's not pulling any punches here, is he? He's being brutally honest. We see the soul's frustration. Secondly, we see the sad futility. Here we see that life in the the cul-de-sac is really a a sad futility. In verse number 4, still talking about that guy, he says, For he cometh in with vanity, and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. He's talking about mankind. If you look at the human being in general, and you take even the chemical worth of a person, you know there's enough iron in you to make about two nails? Did you know there's enough phosphorus in you to make about 4,000 matches? Did you know that there's enough, uh, well, there's enough fat in people, I'll keep it generic, to make about 75 candles? There's enough hydrogen to fill an average-sized balloon? You have about 60 spoons of, of, of salt in you and about a bowl full of sugar and about six gallons of water and uh, enough lime in you to whitewash uh, a chicken coop. And there's a trace of magnesium and potassium and, and sulfur. Uh, if you total it all up, you're, you're worth about a couple of bucks in mineral value. That's not real flattering, is it? And yet we'll spend an hour every morning and all week long we'll, we'll primp and we'll pamper and we'll get that body ready. We'll spend a lifetime pampering it, but we forget that soul. There are so many who are living with no regard for their soul. They're making no provision for eternity whatsoever. And yet, notice in verse 4, Solomon says of man, he cometh in with vanity and departeth in darkness and his name shall be covered with darkness. It doesn't matter if you're a king. One day the king will step down from his throne. One day the minister will close his Bible and he will have preached his last sermon. One day the judge will lay down his gavel and he'll step down from his bench. One day a lawyer will have tried his last case. One day the author will have written his last book. One day the banker will have written his or her last loan. One day the poet will have written his last poem. One day the nurse will have tended to her last patient. One day the lumberjack will have knocked down his last tree. One day the actor will have acted in his last drama. One day the farmer will have plowed his last field. One day the mother will lay down her things and and, and we'll all lay down our knife and our fork and we will go out into eternity. And that's what Solomon's talking about here. That darkness shall cover us. In verse number 5, he says, Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. Now, nobody but Solomon would know that better with all his riches, wealth, and honor. Solomon's saying, that's me. That's me. And he's being brutally honest with us. Now, what about living a longer life? Maybe that would scratch that itch. Notice in verse 6, he says, Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, Yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place. Now, friend, if if life is marred by tragedy and anxiety and heartache, why prolong it? That's what he's saying. Why make it a thousand years? Folks, one day your heart will stop. and, and, And that will be the end of your life. But that will not be the end of you or me. Later on in this book, chapter 12, verse 5, he's going to say this, Man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the street. One day our hearts will stop. We will go to our long home, depending on whether we're lost or saved. And mourners will go about the street. They'll have a funeral back on the top side of the earth. 
You know, if we put it in perspective like Solomon does, really, next to eternity, this temporal world can be very petty. And it can be very uh, piddly. And all the trends and all the fashions and all the, the things that are in, in vogue and all the, the things that are chic won't matter one day. What the talking heads who go around the clock talking about all this stuff won't matter one day. The splitting of the hairs won't matter one day. Who won the Super Bowl and who won the World Series and who's going to win the Stanley Cup and who's going to win the Academy Award? None of that's going to matter one day. It's all shallow. And we need to think long term. And we have reminders from Solomon and others to do that. In 1 Corinthians 7.31, it says, And they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. And it is. God help us to remember that. This world is passing away. Therefore, we're told in 1 Peter 1.17 to pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. That word sojourning simply means your pilgrimage. You're just passing through And so pass the time of your sojourning here in the fear of the Lord. Well, we've seen the soul's frustration and the sad futility. But thirdly, Solomon talks about this senseless fantasy, this senseless fantasy. He's going to turn it up a notch. He's going to imply that maybe harder work will scratch the edge. Well, notice in verse 7, he says, All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. Now, that word appetite is the Hebrew word nephesh. Nephish. And it's really talking about not just your stomach, but that part of man that craves. Jesus made reference to it over in the New Testament. In John seven thirty eight. he said, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, what's he talking about? A literal river coming out of your stomach? No, he's talking about the part of man that craves, that's always desiring and yearning and and seeking and, and panting after something. And he says, if you believe on him, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. It speaks here of an abundance. Having the, the full life and having all those those desires met, he's talking about those appetites. And that's what Solomon's talking about here. All the labor of man is for his mouth, yet the appetite is not full. He's talking about the things people seek after, and it begs the question to all of us, what are we seeking after? What are we searching for? What drives us? In Isaiah 49.4, says, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Here's the prophet talking about so many people that, that, that waste their time looking for something that does not fulfill them. And Solomon's talking about work. Work can't do it. I'm, I'm sorry, you can spend endless hours working. That won't satisfy an empty life, and that won't cure depression. Now, maybe it's an education that'll do it. Maybe a, a bright mind. Well, we read on in verse 8. Solomon says, For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Notice he mentions better, I'm sorry, For what hath the wise more than the fool. He's not covering the grim reality of life. You can be seeking education, you can get a degree, uh, you can have a career, that's all well and fine, but if you're thinking that will finally bring fulfillment, it won't. In verse 9, he mentions, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. Now, let's just stop right there. Better is the sight of the eyes. He's, He's actually addressing all the things that People think, well, bring them happiness if they could just get this and they dream about. And and this is where I call it the senseless fantasy. He says, better is the sight of the eyes 
than the wandering of the desire. And what he's saying here is we need to get a, a latch on reality. We need to come back to the real world, enough of the fantasy. He's telling us in verse 9, the real thing is better than the dreams. It's kind of like we say a bird in the hand is, is worth two in the bush. And, and Solomon, in so many words, he's saying pizza in the mouth is, is better than a flaming young in your dreams. He says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't dream. Uh, I think there's a place for it. I hope you're a dreamer. I think I'm a dreamer. I, I, I think we should dream with God, all right? I think we should attempt great things uh, with God. But Solomon here is talking about the individual who, who's always dreaming about what could be and what I could have, but they never follow through with it. And so they frustrate others. Others roll their eyes when they talk about their, their big plans. And he's saying, look, uh, you'd be better off just being content with what you have than this thing you can never have. And, uh, and, and if you're married to a dreamer and they don't follow through, you know that frustration. It's, it's possible to have these big plans, but they get you into financial trouble quite often. And so he mentions this senseless fantasy. And then finally, he gets to what I think is the crucial part of the passage, the sovereign factor. Notice in verse 10, he says, That which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Now what's he talking about here? If I could sum up verse 10 in one word, it's sovereignty. Sovereignty. That which hath been or is going to be has already been determined. God knows what's coming and that we cannot contend with God who is mightier than us. God is sovereign. There's a real struggle in a lot of people's hearts over many events and and many things that happen in life because they don't remember God's on the throne. God is in charge. God is in charge. God is in charge. And if if you could peek into heaven today, I'll, I'll tell you this much, you wouldn't find panic. You wouldn't find the angels wringing their hands and, and the, the cherubims freaking out and saying, what are we going to do? No, it's very calm in heaven. As we speak, there's a very calm that's settled over heaven because God's always in control. God has never said, oops. God has never had to resort to plan B. God always has a plan, and it's the best plan. You know, as parents, we know that kids can be funny in this area. Uh, they think sometimes they have a better plan. Normally, it's an easier plan. And, and uh, they have an easier way. Well, we're like that with God sometimes. We say, God, I, I got this other plan. I, I've got this better plan. But God's way is always the best. And that's what verse 10 means at the end, where it says, Neither may he, that is us, man, contend with him, God, that is mightier than he, that is us. You see, God is sovereign. We're not. We're made of clay. God is not. And in Isaiah 45 and in verse 9, it says, Woe to him that striveth with his maker. Let the pots herd strive with the pots herd of the earth, and show the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? What are you doing? Why are you making me like this? No. God is that potter. God is sovereign. We're the clay. We need to remember that. Sometimes we forget it, and sometimes we learn it the hard way. There's a guy in the Bible by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the the, the ruler of Babylon, many years ago, around uh, 600 B.C., and 
And he thought he was omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. And he was spouting off to God one day, and, and God turned him into a beast for seven years. And finally, he came to his senses, and he made one of the greatest proclamations in the Bible. In Daniel chapter 4, and in verse number 35, speaking of God, Nebuchadnezzar says, He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or stop his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? None can say to God, What are you doing? What do you think you're doing? What doest thou? You know, there has been many a person who has uttered that from a bankruptcy court. God, what are you doing? Or after a car accident. God, what are you doing? What doest thou? Or after they learn that they have cancer. God, God, what doest thou? Or maybe from a hospital room those words have been uttered. What doest thou? Or maybe on the way home from the doctor's office where they got the bad news. God, what doest thou? Or maybe in the divorce court. God, what doest thou? Or maybe after a broken relationship. God, what doest thou? Or maybe when there's a wayward child. God, what are you doing? But let me just say unequivocally, there's no accidents with God. No accidents with God. God is sovereign. In fact, Solomon himself is proof of that. Because Solomon is the result of an adulterous relationship. If you remember, David took the wife of, of Uriah the Hittite, had him murdered. Of course, the first baby was born, but Solomon came along afterwards. And Solomon would have never existed if those two hadn't come together. Now, I don't understand how that happened, but I do know this. Nothing surprises God. God is never surprised. Job put it this way in Job 23, 14. He said of God, For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me. And many such things are with him. God knows what we need, and God will perform the thing appointed for us. That's life-changing. It really is. If we would just wake up in the morning and say, He performeth the thing that is appointed for me. And stop disputing with God. Honestly, folks, and I'm preaching to myself, disputing with God is a waste of time. Shaking our fist at, at, at sovereignty, is, it's futile. And you and I need to decide never to do that. We'll never win. We cannot win. It's like, it's like uh, us standing in front of a Mack truck coming down, down the interstate toward us and taking it on, you know. Well, we know who would lose. It's like a, a little mouse shaking its little fist in defiance at an eagle that's swooping down on him. We know who's going to lose. And honestly, it's a waste of time. We need to come to terms with God. It's time to surrender. When we do, there will be a peace. There will be a contentment. I know some folks, and it's like they're going to just fight God all the way to the grave. It is a losing proposition. Surrender to God. Honestly, if I feel myself getting anxious at times, I, I can mark it down. It's because I'm not surrendered to God. Well, finally in verse number 11, it says, Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? In other words, you're not going to be better off fighting against God. You're going to lose. Verse 12, For who knoweth what is good for a man? in his life, all the days of his vain life, which he spendeth as a shadow. For who can tell a man which shall be after him under the sun? Now, we all wrestle with this. We all have things that we want. We all have things that we think if we just get this, it'll satisfy us. Somebody single says, if I could just get that, that girl, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. And later on saying, if I could just get rid of that girl, I'd be the happiest guy. No, not seriously. And it works both ways. But we say, if I could just work there. Oh, uh, if I could just live there, if I could just own that, if I could just 
drive that, if I could just vacation there, and, and we always think there's something that if we could just get it, boy, we'd be happy. And when we do, we discover that life in the cul-de-sac, it's a dead end, and it doesn't fulfill. Verse 12, he mentions spending his days as a shadow. How true that is. Life's too, too brief to waste, isn't it? I still remember my, my first day of kindergarten. My mom did what she did with all nine of us kids. She paraded us out to the front of the garage in early September and with her little camera took a picture and we still have that picture of little me standing in front of the garage getting ready to start my first day of school. I was talking to the class before the hour here today and we were talking about high school graduation and how many of us remember that day. And suddenly those years just blow past and, and uh, I'm in my 50s. And you go, what happened here? What happened? It's, it's getting to where with life you just look at years now in bundles. You know, we, 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 we all remember, many of us remember Y2K and how much talk there was of that. Well, do you know how long ago that was now? I mean, just look back. It's one of those little bundles of years. And, and you go, where did that time go? Man, I was still in my 30s back then. Where will I be a dozen years from now? Where will you be a dozen years from now? The bigger question is, will we make it count? And that's what Solomon is talking about here. Don't live life in the cul-de-sac. Over in the New Testament, Christ put it this way in Matthew 7, 24. He said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Who's the wise man who builds his house upon the rock? Well, he's the man that hears truth and he acts upon it. The foolish man is the one who hears truth and doesn't act upon it. The foolish man is the one who falls. The wise man is the one who stands. It was like that back in the days of Solomon. It was like that during the days of Christ. It's like that today as well. And, and your future, friend, basically will be based on whether you're the wise man that heareth the truth and doeth it or you ignore it. There are many who are not ready to face the living God. And you might have 12 years left, a dozen years left. You might have 12 months. You might have 12 days. You might have 12 hours. We don't know. The big question is, is Christ your foundation? Have you built your life upon Him? Because Solomon's been telling us now for several chapters, everything under the sun, forget it. That's not where it's at. It's got to be beyond the sun. It's got to be that which is eternal. It's got to be that which is invisible. It's got to be that which is not tangible. It's spiritual. It's immaterial. It's God. It's God. Do you know God? Have you had a time in your life where you made the Son of God your Lord and Savior? You called upon Him and you were born again the Bible way. Life in the cul-de-sac is a, is a dead end. But you know, I said at the beginning... The neat thing about a cul-de-sac is it does have a turnaround in it. And if you're living in a cul-de-sac, you can still make that turnaround. We're reminded in 1 John 2.17, The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God liveth forever. Liveth forever. Decide today to do the will of God. If you're a Christian, are you doing the will of God? If you're not saved today, you've never been born again the Bible way, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't live your life in the cul-de-sac. Come to Christ today. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. 
If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.